Go ahead and get our Bibles out to John chapter 12. Our sister Jenny just read the text for us, and that was a lot of text, and she did a really good job. <coughs> John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be on page 898 and 899. In 2018, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga starred in the hit movie, A Star is Born. This is a tragic love story of a fading rock star and a rising pop icon. It's a pretty good movie, but few fans of this celebrated drama know that it's actually a remake. Uh, To be technical, it's actually the remake of the remake of the remake of the remake. It's the fourth remake of this original story, which was first told in 1937. Instead of Lady Gaga, there was the famous Hollywood starlet, and you'll probably know the name when I say it, Miss Janet Gaynor. And instead of Bradley Cooper, there was Frederick March. It was Remade into movies and TV series, it has even been turned into a a Bollywood production. Now, while the essence of the movie has remained the same throughout the years, much of the story has had to change with the times and the place and the cultures. But not all stories change. Some stories remain exactly the same. And yet, sometimes these unchanging stories, they feel to us like they've changed. Not because they have, but because we have. Have you ever read a book, gone back and reread a book that you just thought was so impactful five years, ten years, fifteen years ago, and you go back and you reread it, and you're like, the magic isn't here. I don't, I don't understand what I, what I loved about this book so much. Or maybe you've gone back to rewatch this classic childhood movie you know you're like you're going to get your kids together and put them on the couch and popcorn and it's movie night and I'm going to show you the best movie of my childhood and then 20 minutes in you're like wow this is really bad it doesn't hold up at all you know the only joy you get out of it is a slight sense of catharsis Uh, on a more positive note though maybe you've gone back and you've picked up a book that you tried to read in high school but you couldn't read it because it was so boring. But then, at the age of 40, you picked it up, and it was profound, insightful, piercing, glorious. The book didn't change. You did. The book didn't grow in depth. You did. Some stories don't change, but we always do. And when we do, we often come to see old stories in a new light. I wonder if that is the kind of experience you'll have this morning as we consider the story of Palm Sunday. I wonder if you'll come to see this old story in a new light. For some of us, I mean, this is the Bible Belt. I might even say many, if not most of us, 
For many of us, the story of Palm Sunday has been shaped by our church experience, particularly the, the Sunday morning production, the, the play that the, the children's ministry puts on for Palm Sunday. And maybe you've experienced this, where they give all the children in the church palm prawns, and they have them lining up in the back of the foyer, and then the music starts to play out of the really old sound system, and the kids walk forward, and they've got the palm branches, and they're waving them, Hosanna, 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 and they line up along the aisle, and then finally little Timmy riding his, uh, his like broomstick donkey dressed as Jesus comes out, and as, as little Timmy Jesus walks down towards the front, towards the stage, all the, ki- all the little kids throw the palm branches down at his feet. And, and it's, you know, we all laugh. Kids are picking their nose. Other kids are crying. Some kids are hitting each other with the palm branches. And, uh, you know, the grandparents take the pictures, and it's all very sweet. Friends, listen to me. This is a somewhat dangerous domestication of a story that is really anything but sweet. This story is not particularly cute. It's kind of like talking about the flood with these little velvet things that you put up on the board in Sunday school and, and oh, look at the bird came to the boat. Well, the entire earth was destroyed, you know? God was so angry with humanity that he decided to kill everyone. So let's, let's go back and revisit the story. Let, let's begin right at the heart of it with the city of Jerusalem, which in the days of Jesus, geographically speaking, was about five times smaller than the city of Priceville, Alabama. It was about one square mile. And during the Passover, the population of Jerusalem, which was typically about 100,000, would swell up to about two and a half million souls. Okay, think about that. A city one-fifth the size of Priceville, Alabama, swelling with two and a half million souls. At the time of Christ, we must remember that the people of God, Israel, had been under the severe, oppressive rule of Rome for nearly a hundred years. And before Rome, they were under the thumb of the Syrians. And before the Syrians, they were under the thumb of the Babylonians. And before the Babylonians, they were under the thumb of the Assyrians, which basically just destroyed them rather than tried to rule them. The Jewish people, by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, have been suffering under the oppressive rule of some foreign pagan nation for centuries. And yet God's people, some would say naively, held to this promise of God. They clung desperately to the promise that one day God would come and deliver his people. Through the darkest night, through the worst kings and governors, they held to this hope that one day the Son of Man, as he is referred to in Daniel, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the warrior king of Israel would come riding on the clouds of heaven and destroy the enemies of God's people, restore the city of Jerusalem, and establish Israel as God's forever people. Here in John 12, as Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem for the last time in his ministry. He's made many visits to Jerusalem. This will be his last one. The nation of Israel is at a messianic fever pitch. 
They already have high hopes and expectations during Passover. Remember what the story of Passover is all about. This is leading up to Passover. The story of Passover is all about God freeing his people from oppressive rulers. And so as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, people have been hearing things about him. They've seen one false Messiah after another rise up and then die down. Maybe this will be the one to save us. Maybe this will be the one to save us. Their last great hope was in John the Baptist. I mean, there seemed to be a lot of promise there. And and then he got his head cut off by the wife of a corrupt governor over a petty bet. All right, he's not the one. And then there's Jesus. Jesus has been carrying out his earthly ministry for three years. And with each passing year... The, the potential for him to be the one, to be the guide, to fulfill the hope, to keep the promise, it just grows and grows and grows. He comes into contact with demons. He seems more powerful than the demons. He comes into contact with illness. He's superior to illness. He has clashes with the religious leaders. He makes them look foolish. He conquers the winds and the waves and he shows himself to be superior over nature. And then right before Passover, in the sight of many onlookers from Jerusalem, Jesus raises a man from the dead. John the Baptist didn't raise a man from the dead. He did some good preaching. A lot of people got baptized. That's good. John couldn't raise somebody from the dead. And, and the, way that, the way that Jesus planned this resurrection the way he orchestrated it providentially, the news spread like wildfire. Look at t- verses 10 and 11. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, that is in his resurrection, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. What Jesus did with Lazarus wasn't done in a corner. And those who were present, they talked about it. Gossip spreads quickly, and when someone is supposedly raised from the dead, a lot of people hear about it fast. That's what's happening here. Now, there's this fevered expectation in the city of Jerusalem, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands. If there's 2.5 million people there, perhaps even a million of the Jews there are whispering, They're talking about Jesus, the potential for him to be the one. They're thinking, is it finally happening? Maybe it's happening. It is happening. It can't be happening, but it it also maybe is. And so Jesus, as he makes his way into Jerusalem, people know, people hear, and they begin to congregate on the road from Bethany where Jesus was leading down to Jerusalem. They go out to meet him there. Look at verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, the text says here that a large crowd gathers. Man, it would sure be nice to know what that means, right? Like, 
Well, what do you think large is? Is it, is it 500? Is it 1,000? Is it, it 10,000? We're not exactly sure, but in verse 19, the Pharisees, when they're talking amongst themselves, they go, hey, we got to do something about this Jesus guy, but it feels like it's, it's, it's not going to work because look at they say the whole world is going after him. They use this kind of bombastic language. The whole world is going after him because there are enough people going out there to meet him that they feel like they're losing their grip on all of Judaism. It's a big deal. And by the way, when they say the whole world is going after him, they have no idea. So a crowd has gathered on this road to Jerusalem and they are ready and willing to receive their king. They even have palm branches. I was expecting like a reaction there. They even have palm branches. Ooh, yeah. No, it doesn't mean anything to us, but in ancient Israel, a palm branch was a very powerful symbol. It was a symbol of revolution. After Jerusalem came in and, uh, excuse me, after um, Rome finally came in AD 70 and, and put down the Jewish rebellion and destroyed the temple and kind of crushed all the Jews under their feet, they found that the Jews had minted counter currency. You know, Rome had its own coinage. The Jews had said, we're not going to use the devil's money. We're going to mint our own money. You know what they found on the back of those coins? A palm prawn. The symbol of revolution. The palm branch was like a black fist or a Soviet sickle or an American flag. It was the national symbol of you're not going to win. Freedom will prevail. When, when we read texts like this, guys, we can, we can read over them so quickly in our Bible reading. It's like, okay, I'm on this Bible reading plan. I'm going to read the Bible in 365 days. You know, I, I got to read my four chapters for today. And it's like 7 o'clock and I have to get up. I have to leave for work at like 7.45. And so you read this and you just kind of breeze past it. The, the reality of what's happening here doesn't really settle on us. Right? But if you stop and think about it, you can feel the electricity in the air as the revolutionary spirit courses through the crowd there that day. They all, just imagine what it would be like, enough people there to feel like the whole world is there, and they're all crying out, Hosanna, 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 which it means God save us. These people who have been broken and beaten and battered for centuries. This might be the guy. God save, God save us. God save us. God save us. That was electricity. Just think about what it would be like if we, the United States, if, if we lost in World War II to the nation of Germany. Right? The, the Third Reich came and they conquered us and we have been living as a conquered people ever since then, ruled over by this cruel and wicked and evil nation. But because we're Americans, we would never give up hope. We would, we would keep hope alive that freedom would one day win and it would prevail. And we would always be waiting for the right moment, you know, the right opportunity, the right leader 
to rise up and lead us back to what we knew we were supposed to be. And then imagine that if we were under oppression all that time, and then maybe this year in 2022, after many leaders tried and failed, the great president general entered into Washington, D.C. You, oh, you've heard rumors about this guy. He's been sticking it to the enemy left and right. And so there's a whole caravan of patriots who move up to Washington, D.C., and they line the roads leading up to the Capitol. This is a good kind of going towards the Capitol. They line the roads leading up to the Capitol, and they're all out there, a whole, a whole throng of human beings, a, a coursing mob, and they're shouting, give me liberty or give me death. The air on the road that day was on fire with a mixture of hope and anxiety and fear and anger and courage and revolutionary fervor. It was not a precious moment. It's one of the reasons why the Pharisees wanted so badly to put Jesus to death. It was a great and terrible day where all of Israel waited with bated breath to see if Jesus would in fact be their Savior King. You know, the best stories, the best stories, they don't change. But how we hear them certainly does. And if we hear this story, the story of the, the incoming kingdom of God, if we hear it rightly, if we hear it with faith, it will change us. Now let's consider some of the implications of this story. Have you ever heard anyone say something like, uh, well, I like to think of God like this. You ever heard of that? Maybe you're, you're talking to them about your faith and they go, well, you Christians believe in hell. Well, I like to think that God would, you know, he's, he's, he's so loving, he would never do that. That kind of thing. What that is, is it's a manifestation of something that all human beings are inclined to do in their sinful rebellion. We are inclined to try and create God in our own image, right? Which is an inversion of how things are supposed to be. God created us in his image. We're supposed to represent him. We're supposed to figure him, uh, reflect him to the world. But in our sin, we try to reverse that and we try to say, no, God, I want you to be like this. Haven't you noticed that all these false religions in the world, all the gods that are present in those false religions seem to be very human? All human beings do that. We like to say things like, my God would never send people to hell. My God would never violate man's free will. My God would never X, Y, Z. And this occurs at both the individual and the group level. In this morning's text, we see that the crowds have come to think of Jesus as they would like him to be rather than how he actually is. Let me say that again. In this morning's text, the crowds have come to think of Jesus how they would like him to be rather than how he actually is. In verse 13, which we already read, the crowd cries out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Oh, they're convinced. This guy is the Messiah. That's what Messiah means. It's like the anointed one, the king, you know. He's the guy. We expect you to be the one who rescues us. 
And it's true, he is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the one who will rescue them. But just not in the way that they think. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, follow along with me. The crowd says, Jesus is king. And then a little bit later, Jesus speaking to this crowd, or at least a segment of the crowd, he says, the hour has come, to me, has come for me to be glorified. And that makes sense, right? Because that's what we do with kings. We put them on a pedestal. We, we lift them up high. We glorify them. We exalt them. Oh, great king. Okay. But then something strange happens in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, says Jesus, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here Jesus uses an agricultural metaphor, speaking of himself to say, oh, I'm going to come and do all this Messiah stuff that you guys are hoping for, but in order for that to happen, I have to die. Now, this is, uh, as you might imagine, a little jolting, right? Jesus comes along and he says, I am the Messiah. Then he says, I must be glorified. And then he says, I must die. And then he goes on in verse 27 and he says something else. Look at what he says in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus is greatly troubled about this death that is soon coming, this death that will usher in his glory and the glory of the Father, this death that will produce all of this magnificent fruit for his people. He seems to be very concerned about it. He says his soul is troubled. His soul is troubled because he knows that the path to glory must lead him to the cross. And he knows that on the cross there is going to be something for him that is terrible. What is going to happen on the cross is something that troubles Jesus at his very core. We see this here as he's communicating with the people. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus collapses in what appears to be anxiety. And he says, I don't know if I can do this. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. It's it's this great irony That this Jesus who came to save at the moment before he ushers in the great salvation of the world is talking to God in a way that makes it seem like he is the one that needs salvation. That's not what you want to hear from your supposed warrior king Messiah. That's not what you want to hear from that. You want to hear from your your new Messiah that he's going to stand up with his chin high and his chest out And you you want him to promise, I'm never going to die. They can't beat me. I don't die. They die. That's what you want. But instead, Jesus says, I must perish. My soul is troubled. And so I need to be sustained. All of this is very confusing for the crowds. Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, 
we've heard from the law, notice not we've seen, we've heard it, this is what's been taught to us, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, at the beginning of chapter 12, all these people seem to be believing in Jesus. And, and, and here we see that their faith is beginning to unravel. They're listening to Jesus talk about himself, his mission, his glory, in terms of death and suffering. And that does not make any sense to them. They, they can't make sense of it. They say, uh, uh, the way that we've understood things from the Bible is that this Messiah remains forever. That is, he doesn't die the Messiah can't die. That's what it means to be the Messiah. They die, the bad guys die, but the Messiah lives. So in light of this confusion, they say, well, then who is the Son of Man? Because we, we thought it was you. But you say you're going to die, and Messiahs don't die. What we see here is that these people have painted a picture of the Messiah in their mind's eye and they refuse to make any edits to their creation. And so when the real Messiah comes and stands right before them and says, well, actually, this is who I am, and this is what my mission will be, and this is how I will achieve victory, they just don't know what to do with themselves. Now, at this point in the story, as I see it, the crowd has two options. Option number one, they can recognize that they've misunderstood the Messiah, right? They've misunderstood the scriptures. They say, well, from what we can tell from the law, the Messiah is like this. They can go, oh, well, maybe we've misinterpreted the law. Maybe we've misunderstood some things. But you, <laughs> you just raised that guy from the dead. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I should consider what you're saying here now. Option number two, they can ignore the one who is standing in front of them. The one who has demonstrated his light to them. The one who has demonstrated his power. And they can cling to their own vision of who the Messiah is supposed to be. They choose option number two. Look at verse 37. <clears throat> Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Friends, do we not do the same thing? Do we not build up a picture in our, own, in our own mind's eye of what God surely must be like? That's what leads us to say things like, well, this is how I like to think of God. You know? And very often, the God that we create, He just seems to be very much like us. I mean, if you were to create a Savior, a King to come and save your people, how would you create Him? I bet that dude would be 50 feet tall, a chest made out of bronze, a sword, ooh, so sharp, so strong, right? And he would just have the ability to crush anyone and everyone. I mean, they could shoot nukes at him. It wouldn't hurt him. God creates a Messiah, and he comes as a baby, and he lives in human flesh. And then he dies the death of a criminal on a cross. We like to create God's image in our own minds. And it's astounding how much 
our God tends to be exactly like us, how much he tends to agree with us in every area of life. It's, it's funny how much he supports our actions, how much uh, his beliefs align with our beliefs. You notice the way I ordered that, right? The God of our, under, of, of our own understanding, he never challenges us or confronts us. He's always in agreement with us, which is a little odd, let's admit. The God of the universe the one who created the Crab Nebula, he agrees with your political views exactly. That's crazy. The God of the universe agrees with all of your parenting instincts. And whatever you do, don't let another member of this this church come alongside and help you see how to do things better. The God of this universe, he always wants us to be in relationships that we want to be in. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I know his word says that I shouldn't get divorced, but like, I just feel like God just wants me to be happy. He always wants us to have the comforts that we want and to avoid the trials that we want to avoid. Even if we acknowledge that God is opposed to sin in general, and even opposed to sin in our lives, we always assume that he gives us the pass on the kinds of sins that we just want to keep as pets, you know? Think about what's happening here in this text. This crowd is face to face with the Messiah. And the Messiah is personally telling them what he's like and what his mission entails. And there's a disconnect. What he's saying and what they believe are two radically different things. People smarter than me call this sort of thing like cognitive dissonance, right? You've kind of built this framework, and the new information tries to work its way into the framework, and you just don't know what to do. You have two options. You can adjust your framework, or you can disregard this and say that it's false, even though it's true. And so this crowd, rather than adjusting their vision of the Messiah, they try to find a better Messiah, the one who will agree with them. I wonder if we don't do that with God sometimes. Look at verses 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, and by the way, this is, this is after they were like, all right, well then who is, who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become the sons of light. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, I know that this is hard for you to wrap your minds around, What I'm saying is completely in contrast to what you've conceptualized. But the light of the truth of God is standing right here before you. You live in a world of darkness. A world that's so dark you can't even see your hand when you wave it in front of your face. But I'm here and I am the light. And I came specifically to illuminate your heart. And by the way, I'm not going to be here for much longer. So while I'm here, open your eyes. Friends, do you know that the light of Jesus Christ is shining brilliantly in this room 
this morning? As your Bibles lay open in your laps or as your Bible apps are open on your phone, the brilliant light of Jesus Christ is shining out. As we read scripture together, the light of Jesus Christ is illuminating the darkness of this world. As God's word is being faithfully preached, if it is being faithfully preached, the light of the word of Christ is going out and illuminating the darkness. Do not be like the crowd this morning. If you are hearing something about the nature and character of God, if, if you are considering Jesus afresh this morning, and you're hearing something about him that challenges your preconceived notions of who he is and what he should be like and how he should act, you have two choices, just like the crowd. You can adjust your vision of Jesus and worship him as he is found in his word, or you can say, I just don't like that church. Look at that blue carpet. I'm not going back there. I don't blame you. Uh, he just preached way too long. I, I, I just don't know if I can go back. Did you see how long that prayer was? What, you can find some way to avoid this, to disregard the plain revealed truth of Jesus and cling to your old vision because that's what makes you comfortable. Look at verses 28 and 30. Go back just a little bit. Let's backtrack. Jesus is speaking to the Father, and he says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine, What we see here is that as Jesus is speaking to the Father about the nature of his mission, the Father speaks a word of affirmation from heaven towards his Son. And everyone there hears it, right? Everyone there is without excuse. They have heard the voice from heaven. And Jesus follows that up and he says, listen, everybody, focus, listen. I want you to know that that voice from heaven was not for my sake. I want everyone here to know that. I've had communion with the Father since before the foundations of the world. I don't need to hear an audible voice from heaven. I am one with the Father. That voice was for you. That voice was because God loves you. That voice was because God communicates in such a way that it is undeniable that he's there and he has made a way to save you. That voice is there so that on the last day, you will be without excuse. In the same way, I want to say to everyone in this room, listen. The voice of Christ that has gone out to you this morning is present in your ears for all of the same reasons. The voice that you have heard, whatever, whatever it is that orders your life in such a way to bring you into this church this morning, God has spoken his word to you so that you will know that he is there, he communicates, he loves you, his desire is to save you, and you on the last day 
will be without excuse. If you're here this morning and you think you know who Jesus is and you have your mind all made up about him, but you've never actually considered him as he is, as he is revealed in his word, can I just issue you a challenge to just read the Bible? Just read the gospel. Start with the gospel of Mark. It's pretty fast-paced. And just read about Jesus. If you're an unbeliever, great. If you're a believer and you've just kind of, your diet for your whole Christian life has been like, yeah, I mean, I get the word when I go to church on Sundays. No, no, I'm saying you yourself dive into the word and see if the Jesus that you find there matches up with the Jesus that exists in your mind's eye. Anyone who has been faithfully following who has been faithfully following Jesus for some time will tell you that they regularly have experiences where they encounter the living Christ in his word and they go, oh, okay, I got a little bit more. I thought I knew, but now I see even more clearly. This is perhaps especially true for believers, right? Because we all are all in danger of thinking that we got this whole Jesus thing figured out. We, we understand the gospel story as well as anyone ever could. But the fact is, is that we of all people are most in danger of worshiping a Jesus of our own understanding. I mean, in the Bible Belt, come on, guys. This is the danger that we are in in this morning. Everyone here this morning, this is our biggest threat We've done the Bible studies, we've done the Sunday schools, we've listened to our fair share of sermons, and all that's good. But I can tell you story after story after story after story after story of people who have spent decades in church who never met the real Jesus. The Bible studies that they went to were shallow. The sermons that they listened to, although they never knew it, were full of legalism. They were all man-centered, all about me and how I feel. No one ever told them about the living Christ. The worship that they experienced for decades was spiritual junk food. The good works that they practiced in their Christian faith were all legalistic. I can tell you stories about these Christians and how they spent decades worshiping a Jesus of their own understanding. And then one day, everything changed. Maybe it was a podcast. Maybe it was a sermon. Maybe someone gave them R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God or Chosen by God or J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Or maybe they just sat down and read the Bible and they encountered a passage that confronted them in a way that they had never been confronted before. And then everything changed. And they realized, I don't know this gospel at all. I don't know this Jesus at all. I may not even be a Christian. Raise your hand if you think you've had an experience like that in this church. Raise it high. High, high, high. That's a lot. And when that happens to us, we have to reconsider everything. Not just theological things like how we understand grace, although that's a big part of it. But then that affects everything else, like the way we parent and our career and our children and our understanding of manhood and womanhood and money and sex and so forth. And this process of 
of realigning our vision of Jesus to who he actually is as he has communicated himself in his word. It's always hard. I mean, in one sense, it's easy if you're a Christian, right? You're like, ah, I'm an idiot. Makes sense. Let's just figure it out, right? But in another sense, it's hard because, well, it's a shot to the ego to come along and say, I fundamentally misunderstood the gospel. I fundamentally misunderstood God. My worship has been anemic. Requires a lot of repentance and confession, tears, difficult conversations. And then on top of that, because you don't exist in a vacuum, more often than not, you coming to realize the true gospel ends up impacting you in other ways, like relationally, like sometimes you lose friends. And even if you don't lose the friends, the relationships are strained for years. Finances are affected. Reputations may be sacrificed. Careers are put in jeopardy. I knew a man who was on a plane getting ready to fly from one city where he was a church planning resident for a year to go to another city to meet his fellow church planner and the next Sunday they were going to have their first church planning service. He got saved in the airport on the way there. He had to call his friend and say, I can't do it. I'm a new Christian. That is the kind of thing that happens to us. And it's easy, but it's not easy. We do have to count the cost. Which is why in verse 26, you can look there, Jesus says this, whoever loves his life will lose it. If you don't want to count the cost, then all these things that you're clinging to, you're going to lose them anyways. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. When we give up the God of our own understanding and submit our worship to the one true God, we will always, in some shape, form, or fashion, have to give up this world. We will have to give up this life. We have to sacrifice our lives to Him. And sacrifices always hurt. That's why it's called a sacrifice. Sacrifices are always messy. Sacrifices are always costly but it's always worth it in the end look at verse 26 Jesus says if actually I read the wrong verse last time but you guys you made it with me if anyone serves me he must follow me and where I am there he will be my servant also If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So losing your life is in verse 25, and then the reward of giving up your life, of sacrificing your life, is there in verse 26. Whenever I talk to Christians who have gone through this experience of having to recalibrate their understanding of everything in relation to their faith, they all say the same thing. Well, they say two things. It was hard but it was worth it. Of course it's worth it. To trade in this life, this life, for the life to come, that's an easy trade any day of the week, which is one of the reasons why it's so dangerous to be wealthy. Wealth makes you feel like this life is good. It's not that hard. It's not that bad. I don't know if I want to go to the next life. I'm pretty comfortable. Even then you still suffer. 
And then Jesus says, at the end of verse 26, I just want to go back and look at that that again because it it blows me away. Uh, Let's just read the whole verse again. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And that means through death, right? Jesus died on the cross. We must suffer with him. We must die with him. We will be buried with him. Then he says, and where I am, there will my servants be also. Okay, that we get it. The servant follows the master. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Just imagine that day. You know, I think about like my kids, like uh, their ceremonies for like their, you know, their rewards in school. You know, we go up there. There's an auditorium, half half full of parents because it's at like 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. Who can be at these things at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday? I'm a pastor, but how do you guys do it, right? So we go there and they all line up, you know, and the award is like. Who came to school at least 25 days this year, you know, and, and the kids are just, and they're beaming and they're so happy and they're so proud and they stick out their chest and they get the award or they, they get their certificate and they shake and they just, and Bella, man, she would come home and she would be like, daddy, daddy, did you see my award? Look what they honored me for. And I'm like, oh, great, you know, so proud of you, babe. This should go to your mom. She's the one who had to wake you up every day and get you there. Can you even begin to imagine what it will be like on the last day when you see how pathetically you really laid down your life? I mean, you tried, but it was, it was pretty bad. In the end, you'll see all of it. You'll see all of your failures, all the ways that you failed Jesus, all the ways that you clung to this world rather than abandoned this world, all the ways that you chose comfort instead of to suffer with the Christ, all the ways that you feared man more than you feared God. You're going to see all of that on the last day. And God's going to bring you into his presence. And he is going to bestow his honor on you. And in order for us to receive that honor, Jesus had to lose his honor. Jesus, the most honorable, the most worthy, the most glorious being that has ever existed, the perfect human, he came, lived a perfect life, never sinned, never rebelled against the Father. And yet he went to the cross. He suffered the wrath of God. He took on himself the penalty for our sins and transgressions. All of our love of this world, he paid the price for that. All of our lack of faith, all of our unbelief, he died and paid the price for that. All the sins that we still cling to in the dark, he died for that. It was only because the most honorable being lost all of his honor, that we can receive any honor at all from the Father. And this is the promise of the gospel. You exchange something that is literally worthless in order to get something that is infinitely glorious. And you can't work your way into this. It's literally impossible. There's no amount of good things you can do to work your way into this glory. All you have to do is be the servant that follows the master. 
He's already showed you the way. He's gone through the way already. He is the epitome of leading from the front. He's done it, and he's done it worse than you. It was harder for him. And he has cleared the path for you. And then he sends his Holy Spirit to come live inside of you and walk you all the way down through the treacherous path. It feels like you contribute, but really you don't. It's all of grace. But maybe you this morning need to take that first step and enter into his grace. I went through my own process of having to die to my own understanding of the gospel and, and who Jesus was. And this is even after I became a Christian. And it was hard and it hurt and it left me confused and anxious and angry at the church. But when I, I finally came to see the one true Jesus and, and all of his glory sort of snapped into focus for me, I felt like I learned the story of the gospel all over again. And when I did, I realized that the story hadn't changed. I had. I changed, not because of anything in me, but because God had changed me. He gave me eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts, a heart to receive the one true Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, that's what's happening for you this morning. Maybe you've been in church or around church or adjacent to the church your whole life and you've encountered the Jesus story a million times, every way imaginable, VBS, Sunday school class, and you feel so confident that you understand it. Well, friend, maybe you don't know the Jesus story quite like you think you do, but you can. You can learn it. You can experience it. You can be changed by it as you consider it again by God's grace this morning. And maybe the Jesus story will come to life for you this morning, not because the story has changed, but because God has changed you. Let's pray. Father, your grace is our only hope in this world. And we rejoice in the fact that you are a father who, who doles out his mercies abundantly. You love to give out your grace and mercy to those who are lost and confused and hurt and angry and anxious. And so we pray for any of those who may not know you here this morning that you would show yourself to be that kind of father to them right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. Not that we can control your actions, Lord, but this is what we hope for, that you would move, obviously, in the same way that you did when you resurrected Lazarus. And for those of us who already know you, Lord, but who are in a funk, who have stalled out in our faith, who have become complacent, we pray that you will reveal yourself to us again fresh. Cause us to reconsider the gospel story so that we might continue to excel in grace and mercy. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.